The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we're going to be talking about what the future may hold with the coronavirus as we learn to live with it, as opposed to trying to purely control or even eradicate it. My two guests today are former advisors to President Biden's COVID-19 transition team. Here's Dr. Zeke Emanuel and Dr. Celine Gounda. A very warm welcome to you both. Good to be here. Great to be here. Dr. Gounda, let me stay, start with you, if I may. Yesterday, I ordered four tests, as I know many other Americans did, from the government's website, um, rapid antigen tests. Help me understand how to use them. How useful are four tests for a household? And how do I prioritize their use? So with respect to how to use the rapid antigen tests, what the administration is encouraging people to do is really use them if you have symptoms, if you've had a high-risk exposure, and want to know if you have COVID, or if you're going to be around people who are highly vulnerable. So for example, grandmother in the nursing home, people who are elderly, highly immunocompromised, uh, living in congregate settings, or are otherwise vulnerable, testing yourself before you spend time with them to make sure that you're not contagious or infectious and not a threat to them. Uh, I agree with you that uh, there are some challenges with respect to distribution for tests is not a lot of tests, and that's why uh, the administration is really encouraging that people uh, use these tests for those very specific um, cases. Um, And I think one of the things that needs to be looked at is right now it's only four tests per household. Some households have many more people than others. Uh, and particularly in more socially vulnerable communities, the density of housing is much greater, so that would certainly translate into fewer tests per household. Uh, The administration has said, at least in the initial rollout, however, it will be prioritizing, in a sense, putting, um, bumping up to the front of the line, people who are ordering from the hardest hit zip codes to make sure that people who really need access to these tests are getting them. Thank you. So Dr. Emanuel, let me follow up with you. Supposing I had lots of tests, and I know some countries do have lots of tests, how much are they really a means of getting forward? It's, they work for highly motivated people. We know we can get breakthrough infections with Omicron. We're not always around highly motivated people. Are they really a means ahead? So they are definitely important for fighting Omicron. Uh, and COVID more generally. But we should be very clear, a test does not treat the illness. The important thing of using a test is try to block transmission from someone who's positive. That's really their use. So as Celine said, if you've been exposed to tests to find out whether you have got turned positive and therefore need to isolate to prevent additional spread and transmission, that's their best and most important use. When you've had COVID uh, and you're coming to the end of the five-day quarantine period, do you test to then determine whether to go back to work or to go back to uh, uh, visit someone? Those are the kinds of uh, situations where the test is helpful. And again, the test is helpful in trying to break the cycle of transmission 
They're not helpful in any way because they don't treat the illness. I want to talk more about this new normal you've been advocating. But first, Dr. Gowder, can I ask you what you hope to hear from President Biden this afternoon, who will be holding his first press conference of 2022, which marks his first year in office? I think we'll be hearing about the administration's uh, actions this week to make sure that both N95 masks as well as rapid tests are more available to the general public. I am hoping to hear more about how they will scale up uh, those supplies and in particular how they will make sure that more vulnerable people um, have access as well. And we know Many of these people, and I can tell you just from my own experience uh, caring for patients on the wards at Bellevue, many of the most vulnerable people have difficulty navigating a website. Uh, you know, many of my patients who are not vaccinated still are little old ladies who are barely hanging on, trying to live at home on their own, uh, undocumented immigrants who are living under the radar. And it's not because they don't want to get vaccinated. It's not that they don't want to wear masks or get tested. It's that they... Uh, just don't have as easy access to these kinds of resources. So I would really like to hear how will the administration uh, be addressing those communities in particular? Dr. Emanuel, that brings me right to a question for you. I know you've spoken out in favor of the use of high quality masks, and I believe you use them with your student or ask your students to use them at the University of Pennsylvania, where people are vaccinated, I think boosted. I think that's a requirement. So are we getting to a point where people who are vaccinated will be tested and also wear masks. And then there's the other half of unvaccinated people without masks or testing. How do we overcome this divide? Well, let me be clear. I was lecturing, uh, yes, the vaccinated and boosted people. Um, and I didn't request that they wear an N95. I bought them and gave them an N95. To, and it was a requirement to be in the class because it was 140 people in an auditorium that uh, I think the capacity was 160. So people were shoulder to shoulder. There was no social distancing possible. And that I think wearing a mask was very, very important. There were plenty of outbreaks on our campus despite students being vaccinated and boosted. Uh, breakthrough infections happened, um, but no transmissions in classes because of being scrupulous like that. I think the wearing of masks if we have a country where people wore N95 masks, um, we would actually rapidly bring down the transmission rate. Again, masks don't cure you, but they prevent transmission. They reduce the risk of transmission, especially if people are in close quarters. And I think the administration's announcement today of distributing N95 masks is wonderful. Uh, and I'm also hoping it'll establish a new social norm that this is what people have to wear. So Dr. Gounder, you referred to your experience working in hospitals. And of course, we're seeing this huge surge in hospitalizations, I think likely to increase. Certainly the deaths are likely to go up in coming weeks. How has Omicron, which has sort of changed the picture of this virus a bit, how has it made you think differently as an epidemiologist about this virus and what we may face in the future? I think it's a reminder that uh, every time we go through a surge, we have this feeling of, OK, it's the last surge. Uh, once we're on the other side of this, uh, we'll be able to turn the corner and move on. And I think that was the case early in 2021 in the spring as we were ramping up vaccination again around the time that Delta emerged. 
there was that similar kind of psychology. And now again, with Omicron, people are saying, oh, well, you know, this is the last surge. Once we're on the other side of this, we'll be able to get back to normal life. And I think the lesson of emerging variants is that they are highly unpredictable. They throw a wrench in our uh, plans to recover and move on. And I think our new normal should include a strategy to assume there will be at least one or two new variants per year and to be prepared for that so that it doesn't take us by surprise, uh, so that we don't have to take draconian measures to control it, but we're prepared to deal with it. So I spent the morning and some of yesterday on the phone with parents of children under five um, who are expressing great frustration about this sense that we're reaching a new normal because they feel forgotten. Um, I'm sure there's some truth in that among immunocompromised people as well. Other people may be able to move on. They don't feel they can. What's your message to them, Dr. Emmanuel? Well, first of all, they're not forgotten. Uh, we have a, a study ongoing right now uh, by Moderna to try to make sure it can vaccinate uh, children under five. I know that because my grandchildren are enrolled in that study, and I think it's uh, quite important to find out. Uh, we didn't get success with the Pfizer uh, study, and it may be because of the dosing range. It's hard to know. Um, I don't think they're forgotten at all, and we're continuing to collect data. We should remember that young kids generally do not suffer seriously uh, and severe disease from this. That doesn't mean every child does uh, is fine and going to be fine. Um, and we have to understand which children are more likely to be affected and not. Um, and, you know, we do have to have a, a population wide policy. And I think we are trying to do that. Um, we're developing therapeutics so that people who are immunocompromised or people who can't take the vaccine for one reason or another, uh, young kids can get treatment if they get uh, COVID. That's very important. Uh, we right now have two drugs, but we need to develop other oral agents so we can have a multi-drug cocktail just like we do, do for HIV. All of these are measures that are really important to protect this population. I would add one other measure that can work in the background that I think we haven't emphasized enough that can really also make a big difference, not just about COVID, but all viral respiratory illnesses. And that is better indoor air filtration systems. Um, we know that this virus is carried on aerosols and that if we filtered the air more frequently with MERV-13 or higher filters so that it would extract these small virus particles, um, that would reduce, again, transmission and that would be very important. Um, so mandating public buildings, schools, uh, other venues, restaurants, bars have that kind of uh, ventilation. And if they can't get that ventilation, have HEPA filters would make a very big difference for children immunocompromised, frankly, all of us. So these measures, these broad measures sound epidemiologically very sound. But we're in a situation where, for example, the last week the Supreme Court blocked um, the president's uh, vax or test measures for companies over 100 people. Dr. Gander, how do you face the, the sort of political realities as you talk about what, as I said, sound like very epidemiologically sound measures? 
I, I think that it's clear that we're not going to hit 85, 90% of the population vaccinated in the US anytime soon, if ever. And so that really hammers home that although vaccines remain our number one, number two, number three, most important tools in our toolbox to combat COVID, we really do need to be looking at other measures and employing those at greater scale. Uh, so that includes many of the things we've talked about, uh, making more use of rapid tests so that people know when they're contagious, when they're a threat to others. Increasingly, those rapid tests uh, should also be used to help um, get people on treatment. So drugs like the new uh, Pfizer Paxlovid drug, uh, which will be available more widely in the coming months. Those drugs could be game-changing, but people need to have easy, quick, free access to testing that then channels them, uh, links them to treatment very quickly. Uh, and then finally, as, um, as Zeke was saying, uh, other measures like uh, ventilation and air filtration, which are really important because they do not rely on individual behavior and can also be a place of uh, public-private partnership to scale up uh, those kinds of infrastructure improvements in, in public buildings and elsewhere. Can so, I just so, emphasize one? Yes, I want to follow sorry, up Can you. I Go just ahead. emphasize one thing that Celine uh, was exactly in what she said, but just to really put it home. The best way to protect kids under five, to protect uh, the immunocompromised, is to disseminate vaccinations throughout the population and bring the case count and the circulating viruses down so that there's a lower chance that those vulnerable groups will be exposed to virus. We're not getting to zero, we're reducing the risks. And that I think is a very important uh, psychology. Parents who, you know, in the past didn't obsess about the flu, um, they just went on their business. When we get down and there's not that much COVID, it's not going away, but it's present at a much lower level. And the people who get it don't get hospitalized or uh, die uh, at a very high rate. That actually will should allow us to get to a new normal and allow parents to ease up. And the best way to get there, again, is vaccination and reduce the ambient rate of the coronavirus circulating. But Dr. Emanuel, I really want to follow up on this. We've had this setback last week, the Biden administration's vax or test mandate in big big uh, offices. Are there other levers the, the administration should pull? Is the pres are the president's hand tied or do we look at vaccination for domestic air travel? I don't know. How do we make this politically possible for the so, president? So first of all, I think uh, you're uh, revealing something very, very important in the way you asked that question, which is the Supreme Court ruling was not really a legal ruling. It was a very political ruling. And that is a serious, serious problem. I think we need to do four things and the president can try to do four things. The first is we have some mandates that OSHA can do. And it did appear that the Supreme Court left open more targeted mandates where uh, workers are necessarily exposed where there's documentation. So for example, in the meat processing uh, areas, uh, so a more targeted OSHA ruling may go through. Second, as you point out, we do, the federal government does control interstate uh, travel and making it safe through requiring vaccination is something that I've been advocating for months and months and months. And I think that would be a very important uh, change. Uh, Three, we can uh, work with states to uh, vaccinate children between five and 18 in schools and make COVID vaccine a requirement 
just like tetanus, just like diphtheria, just like measles, to going to school. I think that's very important. We've got plenty of federal aid going out, and you can tie the federal aid to uh, these kind of requirements. Uh, we know that that's legal. Um, and I think uh, we also need to be aware uh, that uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, there are many reasons people don't get vaccinated. Only 15% of the population is really committed to not getting a vaccine. There, is many more, there are many more people, uh, about 20% of the population, who perfectly willing to get vaccinated, but for a variety of reasons, like uh, Celine mentioned, hard to navigate a website, not knowing where to go. We need to get to them and we need to, among other things, remove the misinformation that is keeping them back. That's gonna require tackling big tech and the misinformation machines that are Twitter and Facebook um, and Instagram and all of those other platforms that allow people who have a faulty view to keep hearing that faulty view rather than to begin hearing the facts. Getting people out of their information bubble is gonna be critical to breaking the misinformation trap. Well, we're gonna leave it to legal scholars to look back on that ruling, but Dr. Gander, I do want to ask you about building trust uh, in the vaccines and masks. Are there strategies you have in your head that have not yet been employed that could make a difference to these numbers and in, in public confidence? The administration has employed um, a number of different approaches, beginning with uh, trusted messengers from inside communities. Over the summer, you saw the summer of incentives, everything from beer to travel uh, to tickets to certain events, and, and then finally mandates more recently. I, I do think um, the trusted messenger approach continues to be a really important tool very often who is delivering the message is more important than the message itself. And hearing that you should get vaccinated from somebody you trust, uh, I think is still one of the most important levers that we have. The challenge is that many of the trusted messengers that were identified that um, helped with va uh, vaccine rollout in the spring, in the early months of, of vaccine rollout, were very much targeting um, communities of color, other vulnerable communities. And based on what we're seeing at this stage, uh, among the people who are the most intransigent about getting vaccinated, uh, various uh, organizations have done polling looking at this, including the Kaiser Family Foundation. And there's clearly a partisan divide in some of those attitudes. And we really need people on both sides of the aisle, trusted messengers, uh, reaching out within their own communities uh, because they're the only ones who are going to get through. We've seen countries across the world take very different approaches to how to encourage people uh, to get vaccinated. Um, I have a question that's come in from the audience. It's from, let me see, Ruth Morelli in Pennsylvania. And Ms. Morelli asks, are there any nations you look at as models of coronavirus containment? And maybe Dr. Emmanuel, you can start with that one. Well, I think there are lots of countries that have done reasonably well, Denmark, Portugal, Israel, um, and they have by and large, uh, first of all, they're united in fighting uh, COVID, pandemic COVID, and uh, they don't have this sort of politicization, polarization, and we can't underestimate how devastating that has been when senators, uh, or I mean governors like the Sanctus or Abbott in Texas, impede federal efforts to try to get this under control and really undermine it. Second, um, they have 
been able to uh, dramatically increase the proportion of people who were vaccinated uh, well over what we are and close to 90% in many of those countries. And getting people vaccinated and boosted makes a very big difference. And in those countries, as I think you pointed out and hinted at, trust in the public health message has been critical. I have to say um, our uh, CDC has been less than good at uh, engendering trust by the population because of its confusing announcements, its change in announcements, and that really does need to change on the federal government level. We know that trust uh, is very heavily correlated to uh, actually outcomes and uh, containing COVID and getting the incidence rate down. Again, let's remember for the audience, we're not getting it to zero. It's going to be here with us forever, as far as certainly for our lifetimes. We're going to get it low, and that's going to be critical. Dr. Gander, it's easy for us to sort of sit around and be critical of things that have happened in the past year. And I know President Biden's approvals ratings are not great at the moment. But tell me, what's gone right? I think the first six months or so of 2021 uh, went astoundingly well with the way in which the administration rolled out vaccines, stabilized uh, vaccine manufacturing and supply, uh, distributed the vaccine to the states. That was really efficient. And if you look at the numbers of vaccinations, shots in arms that were being delivered per day in April uh, of 2021, it was truly amazing. Three, four million, I think, at the peak in a day at a time. And, and so I think the administration really um, performed outstandingly well on, on that. I think where we ran into issues was around June, July, uh, when I think a lot of people were starting to drop their guard, lower their guard, uh, thinking that we were uh, almost mission accomplished uh, with respect to the pandemic. And this is around the time that the Delta variant hit, that we started to also see breakthrough infections. And I think that really shook many people's um, confidence uh, in our public health control efforts that should have prompted a reset, something that we're finally seeing now. But at that time, we should have had a reset uh, with respect to should we only be focusing on vaccines uh, or are there other tools we should really be trying to implement at scale at population levels uh, now? So, Dr. Emanuel, when and why did you decide to write this or co-write this series of articles calling for a new strategy? Well, a group of us have been meeting every Tuesday to share data, share our perspective on the uh, results that have been published um, and try to understand where things are going and what policy recommendations would be best. Uh, and I think uh, sometime uh, around October, uh, we began to gel that, you know, this idea that seems to have gotten hold in the country of, you know, we're going to eradicate COVID is wrong. We need to reorient the country towards a much more realistic goal, the goal of living with COVID. Um, and then think about what are the strategic policies that we need to put in place both to get there and to uh, sustain our uh, living with COVID. And it was that reorientation uh, that the fact that we thought the country needed that and the sort of baby steps to a strategic plan uh, that we thought would be helpful, again, for everyone in the country. The whole country needed that reorientation, not just the administration or not just some parts of the country. And so that was what really impelled us to come together and to try to write 
uh, these three uh, viewpoints that were published in JAMA. Dr. Gounder, one of the groups of people I know who've reacted certainly to me um, about the notion of living with COVID is people who are living with long COVID. What's your assessment of the risk going ahead if this disease continues uh, in an endemic form or to have major surges in coming years? I do think we need to take those concerns very seriously. There's still a lot that we don't know about long COVID. Uh, the NIH has launched a large research program into long COVID, but we don't have a lot of data out of that yet. I will say what we know about vaccines and long COVID is very promising and reassuring in that people who have been vaccinated are less likely to develop long COVID if they have a breakthrough infection after vaccination. And we're also seeing increasing evidence that if you vaccinate somebody who has long COVID, that can help reorient the immune system and essentially help treat them for long COVID. But I think, you know, going back to um, why we're talking about a strategy about living with long COVID, or living, excuse me, with COVID, is that this is not a virus you can eradicate. This is not smallpox. There are non-human hosts. The incubation period is very short. Uh, smallpox is an incubation period of 14 or so days. With SARS-CoV-2, with the Omicron variant, it's two to three days. There's a lot of asymptomatic transmission with Omicron and the other SARS-CoV-2 variants that you did not see with a virus like smallpox. And strategies like what we called uh, uh, surveillance and containment or ring vaccination that were used to great success with smallpox because you could recognize somebody, even a layperson could recognize a case of smallpox, uh, alert the authorities and make sure everybody who come into contact with them were vaccinated. That is not possible with uh, an infection like SARS-CoV-2. And so the reality is, as much as we would like to jump in a time machine to October, November of 2019, that is not feasible. And so we wanted to help uh, get people thinking about what is a strategy that will allow us to coexist with SARS-CoV-2 in the long run, to make sure that we're protecting the most vulnerable um, through a public health approach, and that we reform, change our health systems so that they're not crushed by the burden of COVID in the future. So Thank I, you I both to... so much. Oh. I'm afraid, Dr. Manuel, we're running right out of time, which, no is a, which is a shame. But we'll have you back. That's the answer, right? Thank you both so very much um, for giving us a sense of what that long-term strategy is. We are out of time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.